Well, welcome everyone to uh, the main EMS podcast. This is our fourth podcast. Uh, we are uh, we've been doing these since January of 2013, and Don and I are very excited about this podcast as well as upcoming podcasts. Who are you, by the way? Oh yeah, my name is Matthew Scholl. I am uh, the main EMS medical director, and joining me here today is presently Don Sheets. Don, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I think you just did, but I'm the education coordinator for the state of Maine. Thank you. And then also with us right now is Dr. Timothy Pay, the uh, illustrious medical director of Region 3. Tim, you want to introduce yourself at all? Hello. My name is Tim Pay. I'm one of the community emergency doctors up in Waterville, and I'm the Region 3 regional EMS medical director. And Don and I are really excited about this podcast as well as upcoming podcasts because we're going to start delving into the protocol changes. Just to give you guys some sort of update of where we're at, we are 95% of the way through the protocols as far as the MDPB's major edits. Um, hopefully, by the time this podcast is published um, and on the website, the latest draft of the protocols have been made available to you all for review, and we're going to start talking about some of the changes that we are um, advocating for the protocols uh, in the near future. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the uh, what I like to call the echomotic section, which entails purple, brown, and black, and gray. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the blue section and the red section. Future podcasts will focus on the green and gold sections, and then another one will focus on the yellow and the pink sections. So be, uh, be looking for those. We're going to hopefully get those out within the next couple months. And we hope that this is part of a fairly comprehensive push in education that both the main EMS education committee is leading and that the uh, medical direction and practice board are participating in. So keep your ears open for those upcoming podcasts because we're really excited for those. Uh, just quickly to update everybody, uh, Tim is going to be here with us uh, this morning, and a little bit later we're going to be joined by another physician who is going to talk with us specifically about the red section, um, and we'll have her introduce herself when she gets here. Great. A um, couple, uh, so as, as you guys know from our prior uh, formats, we're going to answer some questions and talk a little bit about some FAQs before we get going, um, but as one uh, a plea to you all, Please, 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 if you are listening to this and you find value in this, please tell your friends about this. Don recently had an a, a interaction with a provider who did not know about this but stumbled upon this. Do you want to talk about that interaction at all, Don? Yeah. Um, they sent me an email and said that they actually stumbled across this on iTunes. They were looking for other medical podcasts, and uh, apparently we've had enough hits on our podcast now that we actually popped up. Wow. Um, I don't think they were looking for the uh, the Wiccans podcast. That's the only other thing that's listed as main. Um, but they still look across this. They found value in it, um, and they were actually they posed a couple questions um, and a recommendation for a later podcast on uh, trauma care and mass casualty incidents, which we'll try to uh, work that in as time time moves on. Um, as Matt alluded to, we're really trying to focus some of our podcasts on. Uh, the protocol updates and bringing in the physicians from the MDPB to talk about their uh, respective sections. So it'll probably be a few months before we can get to the uh, trauma care, but uh, certainly after the events that have been happening around the country, uh, I think there's a lot of value in us taking some time to have that discussion later on. So um, stay tuned. We'll get there. Um, but let's jump into uh, one question that was posed to me. Well, uh, one uh, thing real quickly, though, but please... Uh, Along with that suggestion for trauma care and MCIs, please pass on other suggestions about content. It, uh, as, as we mentioned, we're going to focus a little, little bit of time on the protocols in the next couple of months, but we're raring to go for new and novel content after that. So, yeah. All right. I think since we have a lot of uh, content to cover today, we're, I'm going to hit one question that actually specifically came from a provider that had been listening to the podcast, and the question was related to DNRs and uh, resuscitative efforts. The question was posed of you arrive to a patient who's in cardiac arrest, they have a signed uh, legal DNR, and someone presents themselves as the medical power of attorney and says, I don't care, I want you to work, my parent. What do you do? So this is Tim. Uh, that's 
obviously a difficult situation. Um, and I think the, the challenge here is really trying to, um, as Don and I were talking about before we started recording, is trying to really honor the patient's wishes. Um, at the same time, you have two patients at this point, family and your actual uh, patient in distress. Um, and finding that balance between them is really the art. If you can reiterate that this DNR um, seems to be the true wishes of the patient um, um, and work with the family member as best you can, um, I think that would be ideal if you could bring them around to what the DNR is actually suggesting is what the patient legally was asking for. However, uh, you really don't want to have a drag-out, um, conflict-ridden conversation at that point. And if you feel like you can't control this in a therapeutic conversation, then um, I think the best next option is to call online medical control uh, and really make this uh, a sort of punt the issue. That's why your physicians are online. That's why they're there to back you up is when you get into sticky situations that you really don't find a clear answer in your protocols. Yeah, I don't think I can uh, add any more to that. I, I think that um, Tim hit the nail on the head that there really are two, two patients and um, I think we have to acknowledge that family um, and patients make decisions about end-of-life care and commonly or not, well, commonly enough that when encountered with end-of-life care, uh, decisions change. This is something that we see very commonly in um, in emergency medicine in general, not just in EMS, but in emergency departments and in end-of-life care across the spectrum of, of, of the hospital. Um, and I, I think that Tim hit the nail on the head talking about a therapeutic conversation with the family at the time of care regarding reflecting back on the wishes of the patient. And then if unable to circle around to uh, what you believe is a reasonable um, uh, a reasonable outcome of that conversation, referencing medical control and talking to online medical control about the next steps. The only other thing that I would encourage providers is uh, when you have this discussion, if you do either you or medical control convince this individual that you know we should respect the patient's wishes, don't forget that there are resources that we can access uh, for this individual to help them through this process afterwards. Um, and I would urge you to follow kind of the regional guidelines that, that are in place uh, for accessing um, chaplains or whatever else, uh, whatever other resources may be available to you in your area. I would also, I, I think I would also, I've been in this situation clinically where I have a DNR of a patient, I have a family that wants to override it and have me work the resuscitation. And I think the, I've done this well and I've done this not so well. And I think when I've been most successful is when I've been most flexible in my thinking. And really, I try to take my own beliefs out of this. And I have been in situations where um, I the family is so adamant that I've compromised on 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 the DNR and I've worked a code and I think at that point even though I think clinically I felt that code was not going to be successful it was at that time more therapeutic for the family and I know that may have gone against wishes but it really is a case-by-case case. you know on scene you may have such adamant and um, forceful family emotions that you really feel paralyzed by that and getting access to online medical control is just not reasonable to take the time to try to get somebody on the phone. And I think there are situations where it's never black and white. So being rigid in that kind of situation is not going to bode you well. Um, ideally, the patient's wishes should be, but this is street medicine. And sometimes the scene dictates um, a need for flexibility and for innovative thinking that we really at the tabletop here can anticipate. So um, I don't know if, Matt, you want to... Well, that's actually a nice segue into the discussion of the protocols, to be honest with you, because... Um... Um, I want to I want to kind of start this conversation off by taking the thirty thousand foot view of the protocols this time round and the protocols in two thousand eleven, and um, you know what we realized we spent about we spent about a year and a half talking about the airway algorithm, and I think it was fair to say that we all recognized in two thousand and nine when we started this conversation that we needed to update the airway algorithm. But we really, really struggled because we approached this update as we had approached the protocols in many other situations in the past, which was, if this, then that. And what we realized as we went through this process and we struggled with this very formulaic, very um, structured approach to the airway protocols 
we finally realized that we were unable to dictate all of the nuances that occurred on the scene in every single patient who required air airway management. If you reflect back on the, the airway protocol up until 2011, it basically said, if you have respiratory distress, bag while you're preparing to intubate, then intubate. And what we recognized was that was failing our providers and most importantly our patients time and time and time again because our patients, not all of them needed to be intubated. And what we did in 2009 and 10 and then what you saw in 2011 was we began to understand that we needed to rest upon your own your clinical judgment, that we needed to recognize that you are professionals we needed to recognize that as professionals, you have a clinical impression and a, a, a clinical judgment, and that we have to rely on your judgment and impression on scene to make decisions about what the patient needs. And the best we got to in that airway algorithm was to say, we have three goals. We need to probably, in this order, oxygenate, ventilate, and we need to uh, protect the airway. And that along with those goals, we have many different tools and many different ways to accomplish those goals. So please use those tools and use those and recognize those goals. And I think that, that that's, a, that's something that we, we started with in 2011. We came to that realization. And I think, I hope that what you'll see philosophically is that we're continuing that same, that same, uh, that same um, uh, concept that you are professional, that you all, everyone makes an impression, everyone has a judgment, and that it's important to act on those and liberate you to act on those, those things moving forward. And it, it's going to start to show, you're going to start to see that concept bear, bear out in this section when we start talking about pressors uh, in particular, and then you'll see that continued in future discussions, specifically around pain management uh, when we get to those sections in the uh, in the green section in particular. And when we say presses, we're talking about dopamine and norepinephrine for low blood pressure. Um, I think also this idea of judge with um, freedom to use your judgment, use your experience, use your professional um, gestalt in your clinical impression also comes with a responsibility because you got to know what you're doing to be safe when you're using judgment. Judgment doesn't just happen because um, you've been doing this a long time. It Judgment is a quality skill when you've done your homework, you've studied, you've asked questions, you make sure that you understand the risks and the benefits of the choices that you're deciding between. Um, and I think with that is on us to educate and to teach and to discuss and to give as many different um, teaching options as we can, but also be open for you to come back to us and question us and uh, make sure that through your questions, you really get to an understanding of, of how um, to make these decisions in different types of cases and different types of situations. I think as a provider, somebody who's still working clinically, I really appreciate the fact that the members of the MDPB have recognized the improvement in the EMS system that we have and are really starting to stress this idea of clinical judgment and putting that um, responsibility with providers. And, and I think along with that has been a, a cultural shift that we do need to take responsibility for things and that we do need to ha make, have you know a, a good decision-making process. And part of that has actually been also the education of uh, medical control physicians about the importance of providing online medical control. Um, the MDPB has spent time and uh, we have updated medical control training. It's now in MEMSED for physicians. And I can tell you with uh, absolute certainty that many physicians and people who are providing online medical control have actually um, completed that training. And I think what's good about this is it's helped to improve the dialogue that happens between providers and clinicians uh, within the ER. So that when we do have those questions, we feel comfortable and safe about actually having that conversation so that we can provide the best care possible for our patients. Let me drop a little knowledge on you all. Who is the person that said, with great power comes great responsibility? Anyone know? A lot of people have said it in history, but I don't know who the original was. Well, the original was, of course, Ben Parker, Peter Parker's uncle, just before <laughs> Ben That's Parker right. was murdered by a street thug. 
Mm. And if you really want to get back to the source, maybe it was Stan Lee, maybe it was someone else, but Ben Parker, of course, is the person who we quote. That's right. And I, I mentioned that because uh, that's kind of what Tim was saying. He was quoting a comic book when he mentioned this to you. <laughs> but, there, but, but, the, but the statement is true. And, and uh, I think that what, what Don references is that we are, we are at the national level um, increasingly uh, moving toward the concept of professionalism in EMS, the moving away from the quote-unquote technician style of interaction to a professional style of interaction and reminding providers of their competencies clinically and their knowledge base and allowing providers to act on those competencies and knowledge. And this is one example of that movement locally that I think you, you guys are hopefully seeing and recognizing. So right. i got to say, it's it's been great in my time as a paramedic, learning the value of actually just asking a question and seeing seeing that interaction and how, how it can change your, your future interactions with a physician of you walk up after you've had a really bad call and, and you are wondering, you know, did I do the right thing? If you actually ask that question of a physician, I, I got to say 99 times out of 100, it's going to improve future conversations with that, that physician. And it's going to demonstrate to them that, you know what, you do care about what you're doing and you care about your patient. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we're all here to do is provide quality care to our patients. Well, great. Let's get into it a little bit then. Um, that's the 30,000-foot view, and you'll see that reflected in this conversation, and you'll see that sort of as other conversations come up. Um, one thing I, I want to alert you all about is that we you will notice a format change to the protocols. Um, that format change is actually a deliberate. We were interested in changing formats. We've been talking about this for a while as the MDPB However, because we had always published the small uh, books that can fit in your front pocket, we were really confined to a specific format, um, that format being the one that you guys have seen all, all along. And because we are no longer publishing those books, or the main EMS is no longer printing those books, um, you, you'll see a new format as time goes on. And let me explain that format in just a second. However, before we get there, um, because we're not going to be printing those books does not mean those books won't exist. As a service or as an individual, you will be able to take the PDF form of this protocol and print it yourself if you're interested. Or uh, the other thing we're going to do is we are, in the very near future, going to give the protocols um, to some app developers, and we're going to allow them to... Uh, uh, we're going to have, we have an RFP out to... Um, create an app with the protocols. And we're looking for a high level of functionality for that app, and we're, we've got a few ideas ourselves about what should, should be included in that. But if you as a provider have ideas, please push them to Don or to Jay or to me and let us know what your thoughts about an app are. Now, let me, um, let me kind of tell you a little bit about a program that's going on uh, at the regional level. And when I say regional, I mean the New England level. Um, we are, as a state, participating in a program that is going to, over a period of time, increasingly um, create uh, common protocols across all of New England. So the six New England states, uh, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, have agreed in theory to this idea of a regional set of protocols. But we also recognize that there are very specific things that make each of our protocol processes important and valuable to us, to our uh, providers, and also to our patients. And so we're trying to work through this process of how we gain commonality but maintain uniqueness and what makes our processes so special. Um, we've committed to this, though, and we believe that there is, a, there is an answer to that dilemma and that we do believe there is a way to continue to do what we do and do it, do, it, do it in a special way, but also to make our protocols much more uniform as we move forward. And the goals would eventually be to have a common set of protocols across those six states. Now, as we do that, we've been looking at different formats, and we've been looking at various different ways to present the protocols. And I think that there's a balance between functionality and education, and there's also a interest in operationality and appearance. 
And I think that as we look across the six states that exist right now, um, there are various different approaches to those, those competing goals. But one of the protocol sets that appears to do that very well is actually New Hampshire's and the way New Hampshire presents their protocols and the appearance of the protocols and the graphic design, etc. We've been looking at lots of different types of protocols out there and the format of those protocols. And I think as a group uh, of New England states and as a group of MDPB and Maine EMS providers, we're pretty excited about adopting a format similar to New Hampshire's. And for anyone who's interested in seeing what that format looks like, Google New Hampshire EMS Protocols 2013. They released their new protocol set in January, I believe it was. And you'll get an idea to see what it looks like. Um, both, uh, I've been mocking this up a little bit along with Kevin Kendall. And both Tim and, and Don have seen that format. Any, uh, any thoughts about the format so far, Don? Um, honestly, I think one of my most, most exciting things about the new format is the uh, special colorized box of clinical pearls, um, because I think I think that's just going to be really functional. It's it's a quick reference for me if I if I um, if I'm having that 3 a.m. call and you know I've got that 3 a.m. fog going on, I can jump down, look at the clinical pearls, give myself a quick little reminder of of uh, some great goal directed therapies, and uh, move on with patient care. I think just visually these look better, they're cleaner, um, it looks more modern, and also it's going to bridge us into an electronic format um, that's going to allow us to be kind of um, a little more with the times. A lot of us use smartphones and apps for other medical guidance, and I think it only makes sense to get our, our actual formal protocols up to speed and, uh, and more dynamic on an electronic front. So props to New Hampshire, man. I think they look great. Yeah, thanks, New Hampshire. Tom Dupree and Jim Swosey and the group that they work with are, are owed credit for this format. Um, they did do a good job with it, so thanks, guys. Um, so uh, that's, the, that's one of the major changes folks are going to see. Why don't we uh, just jump into it and start talking about changes at each of the section levels. Um, just to, give you, to orient everyone, uh, we, when we do this, we usually break it into one uh, medical director leading the charge on a section or a, a group of sections. This year, um, I led the purple, brown, gray, and black section discussion. Tim led the uh, blue respiratory discussion. Marlene Cormier led the red or cardiac discussion. Witt Randolph led the gold or medical discussion. Uh, Jonathan Busco led the green or trauma discussion. Peter Goth led the yellow or the environmental and tox discussion. And uh, uh, Becky Shadrasoulis led the pink pediatric discussion. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, we're hoping to get each of them to contribute to this, just like Tim and Kate Zimmerman are today. So let's start off with that. The purple section, which is our definitions, we didn't make a, a significant number of changes to that section this time around. Um, we, we, with the exception of one thing, um, I think it was actually Tim who brought this, the concept to the group of um, what we mean by fluid challenge versus fluid bolus. We use those terms interchangeably up until 2011's uh, protocol changes. And uh, I think as a group, we recognized that we needed to just, we, we should probably define this, uh, or sorry, we should probably stick with one uh, one word, either fluid challenge or fluid bolus, and then we should look to see if there are places in the protocol where that needs to be defined exactly, or if we should uh, look within the protocols, uh, and again, this concept of resting on your clinical judgment and your clinical impression, if we can liberate those things um, in some ways. And what we came up with was language that essentially says, um, it defines a fluid bolus as running a large bore IV wide open until the desired clinical condition or until a desirable blood pressure based on the patient's underlying condition is achieved. And um, what we realized was that in many places where we had given specific amounts of volume to give under certain clinical conditions, that was very tough, that some patients deserved more volume, some patients deserved less volume, 
and that once again we really needed to rest upon your clinical impression, your clinical judgment. Um, as we get into the discussion around pressors, um, and that'll come up um, later on in this podcast, I think it's fair to say that we recognize um, that we need to give maybe a bit more education around this and to help in some of folks understanding about what we mean in this in this language. But um, we're going to be doing that in a white paper that Tim is going to put together for us on pressors. That white paper will be part of your educational um, update for these protocols and will also reflect on the, the, the uh, content of that white paper in our um, in our educational product, both the online version as well as the um, the uh, didactic version. I think one of the exciting things about this is that this is another example of taking away a rigid A then B then C um, dictated care and leaving you to interpret your case by case situation in front of you, um, and to say, all right, again, like the airway philosophy of our change when we made it goal-directed therapy, the same thing happens with the fluid bowls. What is your goal? Your goal is to improve perfusion, right? The person needs a fluid bolus because they're not perfusing their end organs. So you might see that as a low blood pressure. Uh, you might see that as cool extremities, weak pulses, and uh, not the most clear uh, thinking patient. They may be a little bit altered. Right, that's all um, end organ being skin and vascular system and brain not getting perfused. Uh, and sometimes that's a blood pressure, but it's not always a blood pressure. It's not that easy, right? You may have an elderly patient whose systolic blood pressure 110 is too low for them because they normally live at 160, right? Versus you may have another patient who's at 90 systolic, but that's where they live. It's normal for them. They're perfusing well. So the idea here is you're gonna have to. Um, use judgment and decide, is my patient poorly perfused and I need to do a, a bolus? And we can't tell you that's a 500cc bolus or a 1,000cc bolus. You know, it's a, a full bag or a half a bag of normal saline. It really is going to depend on your patient and it's going to need um, to make a decision and then reassess. And when, I, when I discuss the, the, this idea of education, I think because we have tried to be so rigid in the past, uh, we need to start giving, just like in the airway section, goals of care and allowing you to use the tools in front of you to meet those goals of care and part of what Tim's white paper is going to reflect on is that concept of goals of care and I think it changes with different patients and, and when you look throughout the protocols there, where, there will be times where fluid boluses are then backed up by vasopressors and I think that the way we approach those types of patients is different based on the underlying condition and Tim's white paper is really going to aim to to find the goals of care for each of those different patients, just like we did in the airway section. We said the goals are oxygenation, number one, ventilation, number two, and protection, number three. We need to, we need to script those same things for you uh, in, in, in this, and, and hopefully we'll be able to accomplish that through our white papers and educational processes. I just want to take a moment and remind people, similarly to what we talked about last month, this is not going to substitute for a protocol update. Most of what we're going to be talking about during these sessions or the podcast are more of the philosophical reasons of why changes have occurred um, and the actual education related to those changes will be coming in a formalized process of a protocol update. So please just keep that in mind while you're listening to this. This does not remove your need to do a protocol update. Very good point, Don. This is, we're, we're talking 30,000 foot and the protocol update is going to be ground level, so it's going to be sort of specific to what we're doing. Great. So the next section is our brown section, or the forward. And again, there weren't a lot of um, weren't a lot of major changes, although there is one major changes change that we uh, we as a group agreed upon, and that's in brown seven under the MEMS patient run record section. Um, I want to just sort of back up a little bit and reflect on a national uh, level conversation that occurred a couple years ago. Um, if you guys, if everyone remembers back in 2011, we had spent a lot of time on this section, the, the run report section. And there's a lot of interest at the level of the MDPB in having some written sign-off 
as we went from uh, the pre-hospital venue to the hospital uh, venue. And we didn't necessarily, uh, we endorsed that, but we didn't necessarily insist upon a, uh, a written sign-off sheet. In fact, what we say is that, I'm looking at it right now, services are encouraged to leave a, co a completed copy of the patient run report at the hospital before they leave. In rare circumstances when it's not possible to complete this record before leaving the hospital, services may provide the hospital with a main must approved one-page patient care summary. And we specifically use the language encouraged um, there, uh, but I think as we move forward and we were, were reviewing the protocol updates this time around, we recognize that the um, that this is a very tenuous time in the care of a patient. That as any time we transfer from one service to another, be it EMS to emergency medicine or emergency medicine to a hospitalist or to another clinical area of the hospital, or from the SKU to the hospitalist, any of those transfers of care are tremendously risky places in a patient's care stream. That there's, there are opportunities for mistakes and errors in those sessions and that everyone recommends there be redundant backup and uh, 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 redundant and backed up communication and that one form of that communication be left in written form so that there, are, there is a legacy of the interaction that occurred. Now, interestingly, um, when we were discussing this at the state level, I looked at this as a state-specific issue. But what I've learned as time's gone on is that this is by no means unique to Maine and that many other states have the same issues as we do. Um, in fact, one of the state medical directors, a, a, a very, very smart and uh, a person who I have a lot of respect for, his name is Doug Kupis out of Pennsylvania. He's the state medical director there. Doug is spearheading a position statement that's, go that's going to be signed off on by NREMT, NAEMSP, so the National Association of, of EMS Physicians, NASEMSO's Medical Directors Council, or the National Association of State EMS Officials, ASEP, uh, and the ENA. ASEP is the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the ENA is the Emergency Nurses Association. And essentially that statement is going to comment on this risky point in time for patients and the value of both verbal communication as well as written communication and it's going to suggest the combination of those two. As we've gone on here in Maine I think we've learned lessons both in the positive way and in the in the not so positive way about the value of written written communication and so in this uh, in this section in this update you will see that um, this is a strong, it's strongly worded to say that services must leave um, a run report at the hospital and that run report can either be the completed run report or a quick sheet and that quick sheet can either be written or it can be a part of the soon of the of the of the run report. Many um, many of the uh, software publishers including ImageTrend are are, are getting on board with the idea of being able to cross-populate a quick sheet that can be printed as well as a um, uh, th all that information will also be ported into your end run report. Can I jump in and just, Please. I, you know, I think that this is um, at first pass can be hard to swallow because it feels like it's just one more thing you need to do before you get out of the ER after dropping off your patient. And a lot of times we feel like, you know, everything I've done is done when I leave. Uh, the patient's now in the hands of somebody else, and my, my job here is done. And I think it's it's helpful to kind of have the perspective of us as the ER docs that pick up the patient after you. And there's information um, that I can't tell you how many times I've picked up a quick sheet from the first responders that are nowhere near me that spent the most time with this patient initial, initially on scene in their home with their family awaiting for the transporting unit and wrote down on their rapid report or their quick sheet a couple details that nobody else had, you know, room air uh, oxygenation or uh, a detail about last normal on a stroke case, you know, or uh, mentions that there were convulsions at the time of the stroke that, that the transporting unit never heard or saw, right? But, and nobody would have known because it just didn't get transferred verbally from the high-risk care of the first responder transfer of care, that high-risk time, to the transporting unit that was just too busy at that time, but they wrote it down. Right, and that 
quick sheet came in with them and all of a sudden I make decisions that uh, had I not known that there had been a seizure at the time of this onset of stroke, I might have given a thrombolytic. But now that I see that there was, I don't because it's now no longer safe to do it. You know, there are lots of details like that, lots of stories. And people say, well, nobody reads these. Well, guess what? They do. And all the doctors downstream from the inpatient team to the trauma team to the hospitalist to the ICU docs, they're asking for your information your knowledge, your expertise of what you saw when you were taking care of the patient because we no longer have access to that time. And if it's not written down in real time, uh, meaning before you leave, um, then really we lose an opportunity to keep your patient that we're now taking care of safe. And thanks for spinning that in that light, Tim. I, I firmly believe that we make a difference, that we are a small, sometimes brief, but a monumental piece of the patient's health care screen. And we make a difference because we're a, a resource available in every single community. There are 30-some hospitals in this state, but there's an EMS agency that's linked to every single community. We are everywhere. We make a link because we are the most proximate to the event. And just like Tim mentioned, room air sats, I think of also the first rhythm in cardiac arrest or the identified rhythm in syncope or the patient's living conditions uh, uh, in, the, in the case of uh, failure to thrive or something like that. All of those things are so, so important. And because we are in every community and because we are proximate to the event, we are the only people that hold that information and can then pass that information on. And I think we, we have the ability to recognize, stabilize, to identify, and then to activate resources for serious life-threatening injuries. And because of that, we set the pace for patient care. And we are the ones responsible for pace here in, in the care of our patients. And all those things, all those things are so important to the patient. And they're so important to downstream providers. And this gets back to that concept of professionalism and responsibility. Because if we are professional and we, if we embrace those things that I know we do, then I think it's really important to pass those on to downstream providers. And, and now, I'll be honest with you, as, as another perspective for you to recognize, I know many of you are transition care in a, in a trauma room, and you might think to yourself, well, I told everything to those folks when I, when I did my, my verbal sign-out. I will tell you, especially as I get older, and I'm no longer uh, 25, um, and as my brain starts to... to uh, age a little bit and atrophy and shrink and yeah sorry. yeah and i start to and i start to take uh medicines for my dementia <laughs> i think um, your add's gotten worse too <laughs> my add's gotten worse as well my adderall dose needs to be adjusted when you bring a, especially a really sick patient into the hospital we as physicians have a lot of things that are rushing through our head and sometimes you you know please forgive me but i might ask you the same question after you've said given me an answer and um, that's just a, a measure of the fact that we've, we've got a lot of things that are going on in, in our head. And it's really nice to be able to reflect on a piece of paper after you leave that has those answers on it. Because it's, you know, if we care about our patients and if we, have, if we value what we do, we need to write those things down because they are so important to our patients moving forward. And yeah, I agree. And please hear, we read these. We want this information. And it's the docs downstream that are reading this. Um, and it's hard to catch up when you bring in a sick patient and, and we're just meeting them for the first time. I am catch, I am, I'm 30 seconds into starting to think about this patient. You've spent the last 20, 30 minutes, 10 minutes with this patient, right? You've already gotten to know them. You've already gotten all the information. And when you present to us, even when you do an excellent job, you know, we're, we're, we're multitasking at that point, right? And uh, we're going to get some of what you said, but we're going to want to look back after you take your next call and see on that rapid report of that printed out EMS sheet, uh, that run report, exactly what you found in, uh, and, and look to that. I am definitely looking for that information because I need what you figured out. You did a good job. It's your legacy of the excellent care that you did, and, uh, and we need that excellent care. The better job you do and the better you communicate with it, the quicker that I match that level of care right, and carry on where you left off. Um, and really, your patient deserves for me to do as good a job as you've done. And, and I can only see that with your written report. And it's not just us, the aged and ever-demented, increasingly older ER docs. I'll give some props to two people in particular. Um, actually, let me, let me give props to a couple different people. Um, these are just people that I work with, and these are the most recent people who have approached me about 
the value of your information. I'll start off by saying um, uh, one of our neurologists, in particular one of our stroke neurologists, a, a wonderful physician named Jane Morris, um, who's one of the smartest stroke docs I've ever known, she tells me that the first piece of information that she looks for after she's evaluated a patient is the EMS run report. And her, her feeling is it's the most valuable to her because it has more on-scene information than any other document. And she looks for that first, which I think thought was really powerful. The okay. second person is one of our electrophysiologists, one of our cardiologists by the name of Hank Sesselberg, who approached me um, in uh, sought me out to tell me how valuable your rhythm strips and 12 leads are to him when he's seeing uh, people who have arrhythmias because it's very common that you will capture something when no one else can. The third person is Dr. David Cedar, um, maybe one of the more impassioned and one of the smartest physicians that I've run into. And Dave, Dave is one of our intensivists, pulmonologists, and our neurocritical care docs who also looks to your information um, particular because he's one of his passions is cardiac arrest and he recognizes that some of the some of the um, most important information when it comes to cardiac arrest i.e. bystander CPR first rhythm downtime all that is in our records when it's not in other people's records and finally uh, one of our hospitalists named Lisa Almeter again one a kind and really excellent physician in person uh, mentioned to me the other day as she was thanking me about, or as she was thanking me for information that your reports had um, about a, a, a patient that she was encountering, and she was able to find really valu valuable stuff in your documentation. And I think all those three folks are are just a scratch of the surface of people in the hospital, what I like to call downstream providers, who really value your information and. <clears throat> It's this, this kind of, these transitions in care are kind of like telephone tag, where there's just too much opportunity to degrade or pollute the information coming from one person to another. So it's always nice to refer to the initial person's documentation. And this, this part of the protocols, this section asking or in, insisting upon a written legacy of your care it's by no means punitive. It is a recognition of just how important our work is. And it's a testament to the value of what you do for your patients in the field. Uh, I'd also like to think that, you know, we as providers need to acknowledge something important. You, know, you, you two have just sat here and acknowledged your, your uh, aging, aging uh, you know, cerebral capacity. But atrophy. Yeah, atrophy. Um, we spend 10, 20, 30, 40, sometimes an hour with these patients. And to think that a you know, two-minute conversation standing at the back of a critical care room with a physician, that we're going to convey all of the important information that we've gathered over that past 40 minutes, we're going to forget to pass information along. You know, It's going to happen because you're concerned about your patient. You've spent this time with them. You've learned about them. You've spent time with the family. You've learned things. To think that we're going to provide all of that information in a concise, organized fashion every time standing in that room, we need to acknowledge we're not. So again, we do. We have time to sit down, write these run reports, write these quick sheets up. It helps us organize our thoughts and pass that information along. Great. Tim, any other major things that you can think of as far as this, this blue, uh, purple or brown section that we changed? No, I don't think so. I'm going to pull up the original change document and take a look at it as we're talking again. Um, many of the things, there, there are some very subtle um, editing changes that you might notice as time goes on, but the major changes that we, we did are, um, are listed here. I will mention one other thing that we did in um, the purple section. Uh, we've been really interested in looking at um, IOs and why we use IOs, and we are maintaining our... Uh, our major um, uh, indications for intraosseous access. Um, I will say that I, you'll notice in the cardiac arrest section that we do reference um, IVs and IOs interchangeably with the understanding that when time matters, um, IOs are a very appropriate step for, for patients. We recognize that there are a couple different reasons why people use IOs. One is certainly medication provision. But the other is also for uh, resuscitation. 
And in the purple section, we also uh, reflect on um, reminding folks the value of um, pressure bags when uh, resuscitating folks with an IO and the importance of a pressure bag to achieve maximum flow rates. I think that most folks probably do this already, um, but this, just a reminder that if you want to achieve maximum flow rate through an IO, you have to use a pressure bag. Makes sense. I would just add just a little pearl, make sure you get all the air out of that bag, right? Once you put it under pressure, you want to make sure that you're safe and there's no uh, air left in the bag that could inadvertently be passed under pressure through your IV line into your patient. Anything else, Don, you can think of in that section? I think it's pretty well covered. Let's move on to the blue section. Um, I think it's fair to say that there are a significant number of changes, um, really or uh, philosophical changes to the blue section this time around, or sorry, uh, in 2011. Um, we made some really big overhauls of the airway management set section. We made some overhauls um, at the uh, failed airway algorithm section. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that those didn't change appreciably. We, uh, we've been watching really closely what those changes, what the impact of those changes were. And I think in general, for those of us who've been doing airway QI, we recognize that I, I think we're at a pretty good spot in our airway management as a state right now. Tim, you've been really interested in this and you've been leading, you led that kind of section. you have anything to to mention there at all? Or no, there? I just think we have had a chance to look back a little bit uh, and look at the airway data and Matt's been following it closely out of the Portland area as far as Maine Medical Center receiving EMS patients. Um, and we wanted to see how did our uh, goal-directed judgment um, founded airway management changes affect our procedural numbers. And we have found that we have reduced the number of intubations that we're doing in the field. And I think, Matt, that may be as much as 50%. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, it depends on service to service and region to region, but it has been significant. There has been a, there has been a reduction in attempted intubations. And I think with that, though, if you want to define patients being well cared for, the successful airway management cases have gone up dramatically. And, and what I'm saying is that people have used their judgment and they've decided that to meet those three goals of oxygenating, ventilating, and protecting the airway, um, they've done so with least, less risky procedures on their patients and gotten to the same level of success. So if you're the patient, they've gotten to excellent results with less risk to you. And really, when I'm your patient, um, that's exactly what I want. I want you to take good care of me without, without much risk. And I think that we look at that risk as the least risky procedure to get oxygenation, ventilation, airway protection is a BVM with an oral airway. Uh, and then from there, it might be a blind insertional airway device, such as an LMA or a King a little more risky, and then finally moving up from there into an actual intubation attempt would probably be the most risky on the patient. Um, and if you can meet your goals with less risk, that's really, um, that's really best practice in my mind. Uh, and we really just re looked at that data since the last update, saw that we've been less, we've been get, meeting those goals with less risk to our patients, and I really think from a system level, um, that's, a, that's a nod to you all as providers and shows that when we give um, up on our sort of rigid protocol thinking and give judgment to the field providers who are really providing the care, guess what you do? You do the right thing. And that was just a wonderful acknowledgement of, of the sophistication and the professionalism of everybody throughout the state um, taking this protocol change and really honoring that, um, that belief that we had that um, the best judgment really lies in the provider taking care of the patient in the field. And this, looking back on the data, just proves it. Um, it really has been a wonderful acknowledgement that um, that you're doing a great job. The other big change here quickly is just that we did relook at some of the data on um, erectile dysfunction medications, Cialis, Viagra, medicines like that, and we found that before we held you at a 72-hour limit that you can't give nitroglycerin if you've had an erectile dysfunction medicine within 72 hours, three days. And really looking on the data this year, we realized that we can back off a little bit, and that's okay to be 48 hours or two days and still be safe for the patient. So that's just a minor little pearl change. I think the only other minor thing that I, I remember is that in our um, pulmonary edema section, there were different um, limits for blood pressure recommendations for initiation or cessation of nitrites between the advanced EMT and the paramedic. And I believe we used 100 in some ways and 95 in other ways. 
And I'm not exactly certain why there was discrepancy between what the advanced EMT does and what the paramedic or critical care provider does. And that was brought to us by one of our newer physicians, Kate Zimmerman, when she reviewed the protocol. And she said, hey, guys, why are you doing it this way? And one of the nice things about having a new set of, set of eyes on protocols and challenging us is that we looked at each other and said, boy, we don't know. So we actually chose 100, and we're going to stick with the 100 throughout that entire section. So 100 will be the limit for or the, the goal blood pressure in the, uh, in the pulmonary edema. I think we even went as high in the medic section to uh, have uh, uh, blood pressures of 110 as a, as a goal to have your BP over to initiate ointment um, and then take, uh, taking it off after uh, 95 millimeters of mercury. So that's very different than what we had done in the advanced EMT section, and we're going to standardize it across the board. Seems like simple thinking. So that pretty much wraps up the blue section, doesn't Whew. it? Yeah, and I, you know, there weren't, um, we'll get to the gray section later on, there weren't a significant number of gray section changes that um, I think we need to go over here. We did do some standardization um, between the gray section and other sections, especially in the, the um, resuscitation section, the first few pages of the gray section. But we're going to touch on all of that when we get to red, when we get to green, and we get to the yellow sections. So I don't think we need to, to, to belabor that at this point in time. Sounds good. All right. Mm. Our intention is to have Kate come in for the red section um, to walk us through that piece. So uh, I think this actually generally wraps up uh, the section that Tim was here for. Um, I'm looking at the clock right now. We're at 52 minutes. And our commitment has been to try to keep this around an hour for each episode. So I think what uh, I'll do is we will break this episode into two sections so that providers can listen to them independently. But we'll have the same episode four numbers so that we're not uh, squandering our total numbers. You know, can't can't inflate our numbers for uh, you know for ratings. Great. You know the one thing that occurs to me, um, the the idea of vasopressors and the decision on which vasopressor to use came up in this year's discussion, and it's going to be touched on first in the red section, but it also comes up later on in the gold section. Um, we do have these uh, white papers that I mentioned to you all that we're going to be publishing, and it just so happens Tim is publishing the section on presser use. Don, what do you think about us maybe continuing, continuing this section for about 10 minutes and going through that, that, uh, con that idea of the, of the uh, uh, presser and the selection of pressers that we're going to use um, with Tim? Yeah, we could probably do that. I think that um, when Kate gets here, she also wanted to touch on a few things with pressers, so uh, that can probably be a good way to tie the end of this into the beginning of uh, the next uh, section. Well, sounds great. Why don't we, we'll pause for now, and uh, at this point in time, Kate should be in the office with us because she was going to be here by 930. We'll look for her, come back, and we'll wrap this section up. Sounds good.